0: Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 149 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday morning, January 6, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Um, quiet times, man. Yeah, it's been a while. We took, we took a heck of a, um, a window of history to take a two-week break between shows. Yes, these, these media posts will serve as
1: notification to our listeners uh, that uh, should we go on vacation ever again... Uh, no one's allowed to make any news. <laughs> That's right. Um, such, legal no- such notice is not required, but is given
0: nevertheless. Apparently, our holiday vacation schedules are irrelevant to world affairs because it's been a busy time. Uh, there's stuff from like 10 days ago that I've lost track of mm-hmm. completely. We're going to focus today, I think, Steve, on Iran. Is that right? Iran and Iraq? Oh, we're not just doing an all the episode? <laughs> yes, I think... Uh, That ship has sailed. Perhaps the maxima of combining deadly serious things with frivolity, we are going to talk about the uh, Iran situation in Iraq. And then I think when we do get to our little frivolity at the end, I do believe we're going to talk about Frozen 2 and the final Star Wars film. So how's that for some, it's not really cognitive dissonance, but how's that for a whipsaw? It's something. It's a characteristic of the show. So if you're new to the show, Wow! Don't be too surprised. This is actually how pretty much all 148 prior episodes went. Um, okay. You're, well, you're, say, you're saying not well and awkwardly? <laughs> I thought that was obvious. Yeah. All right. Um, it's hard to know where to jump in on this, but probably it's best to provide some some background before we start tearing into the legal issues. But maybe it's most legal, important. Legal and, and policy yeah, issues. Yeah, but it's best. someone Someone I know gave a pretty good quote to The Washington Post. About yeah, that. and I wanted to kind of reprise. Thank you. I, I want to reprise that a little oh, bit. Oh, by, you too. Yeah, um, There is a lot of legal discussion coming up, and um, I think you and I have experienced plenty of times before, but certainly in the past couple of days, um, it seems hard for some people to, to hear a, an assessment of legal frameworks without assuming that, ah, if you're arguing something is or isn't legal, it must be because you want it to be possible to have done that or to have not done that.
1: The amount of, the amount of SHIT I've received on Twitter over the last week for having the temerity to suggest that I that like I actually think you know it's not implausible that Soleimani was a threat. I mean, it's- I got copied in
0: on one of somebody was hassling you a whole bunch, and then at some point I got dragged into it, and I was I looked at it a little bit. You know, my policy is if I I, if I detect that it seems like somebody's just uh, stirring the pot, I, I, I don't think you know you should engage. But uh, I know you also get bombarded with that, so you have my sympathy. But it's also, like read by like who
1: you know. Uh, have some context, man. Yes, I am out there shilling talking points for the GOP.
0: That is me. Typical Steve Vladek. Um, there's a good uh, program title. <laughs> Typical Steve Vladek. Typical Steve uh, I'm sure we'll do better. Uh, all right. So- I, I, no, I think
1: I think our episode title has to be some play on that stupid ass Trump tweet, right? Like, yeah. I hear. my how did the, it go? These tweets, these you know, these media posts provide notice that this this podcast provides notice. Oh, clear. This 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 podcast <laughs> provides notice. We'll fill in the blank from there. For so, sure. so 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 this is. But I do want to sort of flag as part of our discussion of the law and policy of everything, yeah. also the insanity of what the president is doing and the extent to which some of his public reactions. I think should be giving ever more cause for concern that you know something is not computing, and there's there's this is this is this is what many of us feared about a president who like you know kind of goes a little cray cray.
0: Well, that so let's get to that. I think that um, for those of us like me who were never Trump uh, conservatives, as opposed to me. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm back to my Twitter trolls. Right, well, right. you Whatever you were, you weren't a conservative. True. Um, <laughs> uh, that, could be a, that could be your title. Um, back before when, he, when it was still the primaries and suddenly it began to appear that there might actually be some momentum behind that person, a lot of what uh, those of us who were taking this uh, very rigid view against him were concerned about was that he would be a dangerous steward of foreign policy and national defense. That hasn't turned out at all, though. Well— well, here's the thing. I mean, let let's start right there. I mean, up to this point, I think it's fair to say that um, in his in his interactions with North Korea, with Iran, and others, he's had this strange combination of sort of there's the sucking up to to strongmen strongmen. There's the blustering and the, the sort of the stereotypical bullying and blustering behavior. There's precipitous actions sometimes where he does do things that are confrontational, like you know, um, backing out of, of the nuclear agreement with Iran, that sort of thing. But but for the most part, it's been known about him for a long time that he's relatively pro-isolationist in his views about military entanglements, or at least he often frames himself that way. But I think a lot of people felt that that actually was one of his more guiding light uh, commitments, insofar as he had any. Um, and so part of what's striking about this is that after so many concrete examples of him wanting to reduce our military footprint overseas and kind of viewing that as as sort of, I guess, I guess he views it through some kind of financial lens or whatever he views it through, um, suddenly he's leaning in so aggressively. I think it's part of what caught everyone so by surprise in this latest turn of events. But let's let's talk about what these latest turn of events are. We well, should assume and, everyone's up right to speak. And, and
1: I do especially like the defense of this, that this is, he just wants to get our troops out of Iraq. <laughs> well, they, <laughs> I hadn't heard it put that way, but um, there's there this, are people out there saying that you know defending this nonsense on those grounds. Well, no,
0: whatever else is true about this, it's not like it's super well thought through. You know, three dimensional chess. So I think we can. I think on we his, can rule that on, out on his, on his part, part. Although there is, I mean, there's. I'm only talking about him. No, no, but there's reporting about you know
1: Pompeo and. You know the Secretary of Defense and Esper and Miley and all these guys that like this
0: actually had been in the worst for a while. All right, so right, but but you're not saying that those guys were hoping to bring all the troops home and get the US out of Middle East.
1: No, 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 no.
0: Yeah, no. To the contrary. Right. No, that's what I'm saying. But that but that's the disconnect here, right? Well, there are many different decision makers with many different motivations that all coalesce in this one intersection that gave rise to this. All right. So so this all started what with the should we start with the attack on the contractor? So. No, I think I want to go deeper. There's a Ooh, report that back. Reuters, so with this topic, yeah. U.S.-Iranian, uh, <laughs> below-the-radar uses of lethal force and other uh, aggressive forms of interaction, you could, of course, go back decades, and many people are going back decades, and, and pointing out that this is but the latest in a really, really long, sort of lifetime-long series of, of exchanges of, of sometimes violent, sometimes nonviolent violent um, interactions. But I want to highlight a report that Reuters put out on Saturday. I'm going to read from this because it provides some really helpful context, I think. So, again, this is from Reuters, uh, and I'm quoting here. In mid-October, Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani met with his Iraqi Shiite militia allies at a villa on the banks of the Tigris looking across at the U.S. Embassy complex in Baghdad. The Revolutionary Guards commander instructed his top ally in Iraq, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, and other powerful militia leaders to step up attacks on U.S. targets in the country using sophisticated new weapons provided by Iran two militia commanders and two security services briefed on the gathering, told Reuters. And then the article goes on to kind of unpack things, talks about uh, an increase in the supply of Katyusha and other uh, missile uh, capabilities from Iran to the militia groups, especially uh, Kateb Hezbollah, which is uh, Mohandas's group, and how... The idea, at least according to these uh, these Shiite Iraqi sources who talked to Reuters, the whole idea was to bait the United States into some sort of military action, which might then, A, distract the Iraqi public from its growing uh, unrest over Iranian influence in Iraq, turning their attention instead towards the U.S. Uh, foreign troop presence, and, and B, perhaps even bait the United States into doing something so provocative that it could end up getting the United States kicked out of Iraq. Iraq, which is arguably what's unfolding as we speak. In any event, um, so can we say a bit about why yeah. that would be good for Iran? Yeah, you want let's talk. Let's frame this. Let's pause there and frame right. some competing. What are their interests in the area? What are our interests? So I mean, the you know, short of short of actually invading and taking over Iraq,
1: which you know didn't work so well, right? The the first time they tried it, right? The I think it's been clear for a while that Iran try is has. Iran has had as a goal significant influence over just politics in Iraq, government in Iraq, but also sectarian violence in Iraq on the theory that instability in Iraq is good for Iran, right? It, and so it, yeah. so support for Shia militia groups, right, sort of um, support for sort of different factions, right, in the Iraqi unrest and civil war, right, just sort of stirring the pot because all chaos is good for Iran, but particular chaos is
0: especially good for Iran. Certainly, certainly, I, I agree in general with all that. Um, so if you're the Iranians, what would you like to have? You'd like the U.S. military to be out of next door to the greatest the only, extent possible. It gives, it
1: gives, you, a, it gives you free, uh, especially because one of the things you're probably worried about, so long as the U.S. has a military footprint, is... Um, provoking the U.S., right? It's sort of, you will have a freer hand to conduct operations in an Iraq where there's no U.S.
0: military presence. Right. Is, is it, there's no, no great mystery to it. It's just like China would prefer for the United States yeah. not to militarily be in Japan right. and in South Korea. Um, Iran would certainly it's like no mystery, us but think, to be. I think
1: we sometimes lose sight of the of the forest when t- looking at the right. trees.
0: So if we, if we ask, like, so who wins if the upshot of all right. this in the end is the United States is kicked out of Iraq, that's Iran. a strategic success for Iran.
1: Now, can I can I take this one step further? There are folks who also think it is therefore a strategic success for Russia. I think that's a little more complicated, right? I mean, I think I think it's cert- like anything that diminishes the U.S.'s influence in the Middle East probably is good for other you know powerful nations that also have interest in the region. Um, but I, I don't think it's quite as one
0: to one. So you know, I, I would argue that for China, it's bad in that China benefits from the uh, shipping stability right. we we provide there. Um, I do think Russia is a decently strong indirect beneficiary insofar as their main strategic interest i would argue is influence in syria yep. if we are out of iraq our ability to continue to operate in syria is is further reduced if not eliminated which is going to be the next domino follow-on effect
1: well, although the complication obviously is isis right because it because in as much as russia wants you know sort of to, to support the assad regime right so conditions in which isis can flourish are not necessarily conducive to that
0: i think i think the their view would be that we will take care. Of it. We'll cross that bridge when we come to yeah. it. And without okay. you guys around, we can crush it. That's right. much more uh, aggressively um, and and illegally. And, and but yeah, well, no doubt about that. Um, <laughs> clearly, both in the the Shiite leaderships, uh, and I use that plural on purpose, in Iraq um, and the Russians and others in the Assad regime, all of them are right now not primarily concerned with crushing the Islamic State right. so much as preserving regime stability or leadership Correct. stability. All right, so go, you know turn around and look at it from the U.S. perspective. We could do a similar analysis. Why, what are we there for? You have a multiplicity of interest. Security of energy resources is obviously looming very large. Um, suppressing ISIS is supposed to be, and for many leaders, is in fact a first-tier security interest as well. Um, placing pressure and hemming in Iran is clearly a strategic priority. Um, would, would you it add, would it you, is hard would... to see how any of those are advanced, uh, those strategic interests are advanced by getting kicked out of Iraq.
1: Could I add one more strategic interest? Um, I, I, this may be a softer one, but just sort of given everything we've committed already to Iraq, right, that just the the legacy of it, right, that sort of, you know, holding up to our end of the bargain, which we haven't yeah. always done. You mean sort of don't throw away the, whatever gains have been achieved in Iraq? Uh, in many cases, over the you know over the blood of American service members. Yeah, but see, okay,
0: but so now this is where it starts getting tricky right. because one way to look at that interest, which I agree is an interest, is that that is already at risk because of the mounting dominance of Iran over right. the, the the various Shia militias and the politicians and the apparent who, re, and the apparent upsurge in sectarian violence again in Iran. Right, and so from that perspective, the main threat to that strategic interest, and then by extension to the others is Iranian uh, yep. leveling up of provocations. And this was a way of interjecting a sharp shock to the system. On Soleimani's to, part. That Soleimani was already doing this right. and, and escalating bit by bit and not being deterred from taking those further steps. This was a way to change that balance of calculations. Um, so from that perspective, I don't think it's actually as cut and dried as well, this is obviously insane to have done this. But let's get back to the to the to the more immediate track record. So um, entirely apart, it's an important part of the conversation to acknowledge that there's a there's a widely believed and asserted, and I have no reason to doubt this is true, uh, set of facts about Soleimani and the Al Quds forces responsibility directly and indirectly for the death of American service members and American personnel over the years, not just in Iraq, but certainly in Iraq. Um, More recently, the claim would be that they're directly arming and directly, uh, at least at the strategic level, issuing direction and control to these uh, proxy militias in Iraq. So here's back to that uh, Reuters article. And, And again, we just set up how in October, there was a decision to try to level things up and to try to Uh, prompt the U.S. to take some sort of provocative action by continually increasing the scale of the attacks and the sophistication of the attacks. The article goes on to say, quote, On December 11th, a senior U.S. military official said attacks by Iranian-backed groups on bases hosting U.S. forces in Iraq were increasing, becoming more sophisticated, pushing all sides closer to an uncontrollable escalation. His warning came two days after four Katyusha rockets struck a base near Baghdad International Airport, wounding five members of Iraq's elite counterterrorism service, um, skipping ahead, on December 27th, more than 30 rockets were fired at an Iraqi military base near the northern Iraq city of Kirkuk. The attack killed a U.S. civilian contractor, wounded four Americans, and two Iraqi service members. Washington accused Kateb Hezbollah of carrying out the attack, an allegation it denied. The United States then launched airstrikes two days later against the militia, killing at least 25 militia fighters, wounding 55. That, of course, okay, that's the end of the quote. That, of course, then immediately led to the apparently at least partially instigated by Soleimani um, incursion into the U.S. Embassy and then the airstrike that followed against Soleimani and Mohandas themselves, killing them. That's where we got to today. Um, so do you want to jump in at this point? We, we can talk about what glimpses we're getting in the media about the process of the decision-making, which is pretty interesting, but we, we have only an incomplete picture there. We can talk about the legality of, of the first airstrike on Kitab Hezbollah. We could talk about the legality of the killing of Soleimani. Where should we jump in? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's kind of go in that chronological sequence okay. then, I guess. Um, before the Soleimani decision, you've got this airstrike against Katab Hezbollah. It seems to me at the time that that didn't generate a great deal of angst because I think people didn't perceive the same escalation risks because it was an attack on Iraqi uh, right. PMF forces, not it, who who were Iranian proxies, but it wasn't perceived as directly attacking Iran. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't attacking a senior Iranian military commander. Right. So people <laughs> didn't people didn't pay as much attention, didn't get as wound up about it. But from a legal perspective. Um, Domestic law: What's the authority to attack this group that is not the Islamic State or in any way connected? And indeed, was was from that perspective part of right. uh, the the fight against the Islamic State? What was the domestic legal authority for that? And I think everyone, including myself, who looked at this thought, well, if it's true that these guys just launched, launched thirty rockets that killed an American and wounded others, um, of course you have unit uh, self defense and national self defense concepts under that Article play two. Yeah. under Article Two of the Constitution. So. I didn't view that as, as a particularly tricky question. And, and to be frank, I, I bring the same uh, analysis to bear on the subsequent step of attacking Soleimani, although I recognize, of course, it's a more difficult and complicated question from a legal perspective, let alone from a policy perspective. That's kind of where I'm coming at this from. I think on the first strike, I see the argument, but I mean, this is what we're gonna get
1: into with Soleimani. Like, I have always understood the Article Two analysis, right? To include, um, Escalatory escalation risk, right, as one of the relevant considerations, and you know maybe it shouldn't be part of the analysis. At least that's how I've always thought about it, that. Like, you know, we don't want a scenario where the president can use one act of self-defense as a way of basically getting us into a war that he couldn't get Congress
0: to otherwise authorize. Should we unpack sort of in the abstract? Um, a, what little there is to say about the legal doctrine of Article Two, National Self-Defense.
1: So, th- yes, and I think this is actually probably the most important legal and con law point to take away from the last, you know, five days, right? Which is what I really think the Soleimani attack exposes is just how um, problematic, right, the sort of legal space we live in. I don't mean po- problematic from the perspective of what the answers are. I mean, problematic from the perspective of there's no accountability, right that like you know the what the basically the way this operates is the executive branch conducts military operations based on its own analysis of its legal authorities. For obvious reasons, those analyses tend to skew a bit in favor of the executive, right whether they're right or not. Um, and you know, because of both congressional abdication and because of judicial abdication, um, you know, what OLC says tends to be the law in the space, at least, you know, not not because it is right or most convincing, but because it's just, you know, there's nothing else. Um, and I think what we're – so we've known that to be true forever. I mean, right, for as long as we've been doing this, we've understood that. Um, I don't think the average American understands that. I don't think that, like, you know, like the first airstrike, right, draws the kind of headlines where it's like, wait, the president can do this? Um, and so I guess the to me the larger point of this whole thing is, you know, Whether you like Trump or don't, whether you like Obama or don't, right, whether you like the executive branch or don't, is this a sort of equilibrium we're comfortable with, right? I mean, is this a world, is this a sort of, is this approach to what the legal, to not what legal answers are, but to who's answering legal
0: questions? Is this one that we can be satisfied with? I think what you've just described is is fair and is also entirely analogous to Similar realizations that others have had about, say, the national emergency statutory yep. framework or yep. any number of other things we've talked about on the past 148 episodes where, hey, hello, it turns out the executive branch under this particular framework has all this discretion. And it's really been constrained in the past more by the quality of the mind or the or the morals or the norm the norm acceptance of the office holder than it has by the legal framework. And when it turns out there's someone who's willing to be a norms transgressor on some of those issues uh, or who, who acts in a way that's, uh, from a policy perspective, unpopular with uh, those who take a more conventional view, then suddenly you realize, like, oh, wait, the law doesn't constrain like I thought it was. Now, in some of those areas, you've done especially good work in showing how, hey, here's a reasonable alternative framework that would be more constrained. So, for example, on national emergencies. Um, on this one, it's not nearly as clear to me what the more institutionally uh, robust alternative in practical terms, in realistic terms, really would look like. Mm Although that doesn't mean this, I'm not I'm not gainsaying that it this is this proves to be a pretty dangerous amount of discretion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not sure what the alternative would actually be. I don't know. I mean, I, I have some thoughts. I don't
1: think they're very popular thoughts, but I think it's a conversation we ought to be having. And and because here's the problem, right? Like, it's not just that we have historically trusted that the executive, the person who actually, where the you know the person with whom the buck stops. Um, is going to be someone who, like him or not, agree with him or not, is going to make decisions that we at least understand as to be reasonable ones. Um, it's that the lawyers were understood to be constraints. And I guess I am increasingly skeptical and have been for some time that the lawyers, that the the internal executive branch lawyers really are sufficiently effective. I mean, I'm sure they are more than zero constraint. Right. But I don't doubt that there is an OLC opinion either in the works or already completed about why the
0: strike on Soleimani was lawful.
1: But to to be
0: concerned about that. Assumes that such an opinion would be wrong, but I don't think it's wrong. I don't think we agree on that. I think it depends on facts
1: that we don't know, right? I mean, so, so you know, this is where I think. I mean, we talked about this a lot when we did our deep dive on, on Alaki, right? Because I think this is, you know, Alaki is probably the case that people are most familiar with before Sulaimani, right? Anwar Alaki, U.S. citizen who he killed in a drone strike
0: in in Yemen in, what, 2010, 2011? And and he was AQAP. He was known to be AQAP's primary English language uh, propagandist, but was believed by the U.S. government from intelligence to be – Intimately and personally involved in directing operational planning, or at least instigating plots outside the outside of Yemen, and,
1: and and a crucial piece of the analysis was was the notion that he posed an imminent threat to the United States, right? Not just a threat in the abstract. And to me, the 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 article two legality, because I don't think there's a case that the two thousand and one AUMF authorizes the the strike against Soleimani. I really don't think there's a case of 2002 that UMF authorized the strike against uh, uh, Soleimani. Um, and with all due respect to the National Security Council spokesperson who said this to reporters last oh, week, the, 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 the War funny. Powers Resolution certainly doesn't authorize the strike against Soleimani. Yeah,
0: can we do this? Because I, I feel like we are not. We need to bring the readers around with us and not jump ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Let's first identify, I think I'm now up to five different statutes that have been yes. mentioned, or at least four, four. that are not useful here but yes. keep getting brought up yes um and then we'll come back to what we started talking With about and we were building up to the article right. two so it's
1: Article the 2001 aumf right so so we've done we have exhausted ourselves on this show about why the 2001 aumf which congress passed one week after 9 11 to go after al-qaeda and the taliban doesn't apply to right. iran except maybe in a world where you have a theory about Iran harboring Al-Qaeda in Iran.
0: And let's let's be clear about that. So because the vice president incredibly started touting or gesturing towards that theory, yes. uh, which has a, has a wide following in, in some more obscure corners of the Internet, uh, We well, was before or after the vice president talked about the 12 hijackers on 9-11. I, that I don't know about. Um, <laughs> but I do know that he made a reference to uh, – trying to tie Soleimani to, to some sort of way of connecting him to Al Qaeda. My understanding is that, um, there certainly have been some transactional engagements between Iran and Al Qaeda, despite their larger theological and policy disagreements and hostilities, uh, including Iran, uh, tolerating the presence and and allowing the presence of, uh, basically Al Qaeda fugitives within Iran. Um, but Having said, I think it's only fair to acknowledge that, but there's no plausible basis on anything that's been, been shown in the public record that I've seen to suggest that actually Iran in any way or fashion was actually affirmatively supporting Al-Qaeda in connection with 9-11 or as an associated force or is co-belligerent with it or any of the other tests that for two decades now have defined the scope yeah. of the 2000 2000, no. so 2001 AMF off. No, right. so, so no, one, no That's a terrible argument. Two thousand two <laughs> Iraq AMF is still in the book. Is at least about Iraq. Yeah, at least, well, and, and yeah, I actually think <laughs> it's a better argument than the two thousand one AMF. The whole, the, to me, the whole question is: Did the uh, rather long period where we were out of Iraq, it was over and done with? Did that effectively terminate? The authority, or can you really look at where we are today and say this is just nonstop right. since the 2003 the invasion. same conflict Congress authorized and this I mean it's worth noting that, right I mean the House
1: voted to repeal the 2002 Iraq AUMF last year. Right, and it just got nixed in the conference
0: version of the NDAA. Well, I think that actually that fact cuts against well, the position because Congress has taken up the question of whether to repeal it and has failed to do so. Yeah, although so I, it's clearly still operative.
1: But 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 what is it? But what does it authorize? Right. I mean, the, well, that,
0: that's why I think that's a better argument. I think I think the fact that the House. Took it up and then didn't yeah. get it across the finish line is actually a bad fact. Maybe I, for for those who want a, neg- a narrow, I, I'm less, I'm it. less convinced it's a bad
1: fact. I think it's I think it's I, I don't think it's a clear. I don't think yeah. it puts. Well, us we in have box to three. agree at least that it doesn't actually move the needle because no, you know, the actual one just stands. Just just I just think it's a relevant data point, right? That 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 it, out there in the world there's a conversation about whether the 2002 AUMF is still doing anything.
0: Um, but on the merits, I mean, the two. Well, the, well, I don't want to let this go quite so. If if it's not, yeah, then why do they need to repeal it? And, and why would somebody resist repealing it? Just to take
1: off the table that even arguments like the one that we're having right now. I
0: don't know. I, I think it's a bad fact. But, right. but I think we the agree merits. that on the merits, yes. it, its scope doesn't encompass an attack on an Iranian general.
1: Um, because, right, the whole purpose was sort of regime like the whole purpose was defending Iraq right and and bringing stability to Iraq and the no you know maybe if the Iraqi government were actually like maybe this operation had been carried out in conjunction with the Iraqi government there'd be a stronger argument in that direction but so far as we know it
0: wasn't yeah um, so a third right, you two. mentioned you mentioned the war powers resolution which of course ha! by its own terms uh, does authorize both literally anything. And, and more and more symbolically is not itself a grant of authority to do anything um, so it really ought not ever to be talked about in that particular way. And it way. literally
1: says so. That's why it, I said literally. It's section 8B or 8C, right? Said, it said, this literally says, this shall not be yes, cited yes, yes, yes.
0: All right, so... That an, hasn't stopped him. Another fun one um, that really annoys me is <laughs> that there, there have been a few references to the fact that um, the IRGC, the, uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps...
1: The White House keeps calling it the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. I, I,
0: yeah, that so IRGC got added to the They're list of designated smart. foreign terrorist organizations. Ah, yes. Um, and it's I've seen several sources now acting as if that was the Ergo. same thing as adding it to the list of associated forces under the AMF. No, the FTO list, my friends, It has like sixty of, organizations on. Well, it. It's got tons of them. We're not. We do, it, it is not a grant of use of force. What is it? It is. It triggers third party liability under the material support laws. It has a bunch of Immigration and Nationality Act consequences. It is not in any way a grant of authority. So there's four down. Let me give you a fifth one. Um, somebody was quoted the day after the attack, someone from the government was quoted, as citing a provision in uh, that, that provides funding for special operations. Oh, as, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. It's special operations support. What? 127E, 127 like 127 I believe it yeah. is. It, it's, it's authorization to, for SOCOM to spend money on allies who are helping us in our counterterrorism operations. It's a funding statute. Yeah. It is it is axiomatic as the
1: Supreme Court would tell you that funding statutes are not authorizations. Well, but it's not
0: even a funding to do this. Right. It's a it's money for Here's allies. Here's money to do something. To, it's money to give to allies right. who are helping us. So those five statutes are nowhere should be driving this conversation. But, so before we get back to articles, can I say one thing? The fact that we Susan Hennessy
1: pointed this out. Like the fact that we have heard a shifting series of statutory claims from different spokespeople in the administration is not exactly confidence inspiring
0: that they went in with a clear sense of what they were doing. Uh, well, I would like a friendly amendment. I would say it's clearly the case that they did not settle on a uh, in in a regular process sort of way, here's what the legal justification is. Here's if you get questions, yeah. here are the bullet points on how you answer them. Instead, people are freestyling. Now, in fairness, I do think reporters reach out to who they reach out to. That's right. Many of these uh, things we've just been knocking down are unnamed uh, unnamed officials who are answering questions from reporters. Not all of them, but some. You know, no I mean, one. We have, no one we have, named we have said the, the 127e president. thing. No
1: one named said 127, but there are named people like the vice president, the national security advisor, um, and other named – The DOD spokesperson, whose name I don't remember, but who is a who is a real person, um, yeah. who have pointed to each of the first
0: four. Right. So we agree that it's a total shambles of a of a process. Um, but let's <laughs> this come. This podcast is a total shambles of the process. Well, that's that's our that's our motto. Indeed. Um, the article two. What's argument. the motto with you? That's awful. (laughs) Um, So, anyways. um... Article 2. Let's talk about how this basically works. The The battle lines, this is a war powers, constitutional separation of powers issue. Yeah, that the Supreme where, Court has talked about once. Yes, but boy, did they talk about it. Um, in the prize cases, in the Civil War. 1863, where that old chestnut. The question it arises in the following way. It is clear that Article 1 confers the power to declare war on Congress. It is clear that Article 2 compare, confers the commander-in-chief power on the president. It's also clear that at some point during the Constitutional Convention, there was some wrestling with the language of how the declare war uh, power should be framed when given to Congress, because there was an initial idea of having it be the power to make war. That caused some of the the drafty the drafters to say, well, make war sounds a little bit like you know, sort of how you run things. We we don't want to do it that way. We'd had the experience of congressional uh, running things during the revolution itself. It wasn't a happy experience. Long and the short of it is Um, There's reason to believe from the drafting history that there was an express discussion at the convention about the distinction between running the war when America's been attacked, sort of in what we'll call the national self-defense scenario, where it seemed clear, as near as we can tell, that people felt, well, you don't need Congress to authorize it if you've been attacked. So we'll call that defense. Um, Whereas the power to take America to war, that was meant to be conferred on Congress. So this gives rise to two really big questions that overhang this entire debate when all future cases arise. One is, what sorts of uses of the military require this debate to take place? That is, when do you have war or something close to war such that you maybe should not be able to proceed without Congress blessing it? Secondly, if you do have that type of use of force where exactly is the line between offense and defense when do you have when do you have the sort of provocations that can trigger this national self-defense scenario steve as you mentioned the the prize cases in in 1863 so in the midst of the civil war some of lincoln's early unilateral war related actions were challenged in the admiralty courts process And the Supreme Court thought it perfectly appropriate to weigh in on drawing the legal lines within or clarifying the legal lines on some of these issues uh, and affirmed that there certainly is an offense defense distinction, said that the president not only has the authority to uh, use and direct the military when there's been an attack, but has a duty to do so. But that doesn't solve the hard questions, of course, of knowing just which types of provocations get you there. And, and of course, it, it also does not weigh in because the Civil War wasn't a hard question in this respect. It doesn't weigh in on the question of what are the sorts of uh, kinetic engagements that might be so small in scale that don't, don't raise this debate at all. So you've got those two questions that then sort of get developed and practice over time over the century and a half that followed. Um, one thing in recent years, over the past 20 years, we've had a number of uses of force the bigger ones have been under color of AUMFs. They've had congressional approval. So we haven't really faced these sorts of line drawing issues. The more interesting developments in the past 20 years have come in places like Libya and in, in, on the sidelines of Syria with, with Trump, you know, authorizing a, a strike here or a strike there, not against the Islamic State, which is assimilated to the AUMF but rather against uh, the Syrian government. Those scenarios are ones in which uh, we've seen some development from within the executive branch about how exactly it understands uh, just how much authority uh, can be exercised before you have to have these debates about war powers. Um, And both the Obama administration and the Trump administration and their predecessor administrations have chosen in in a way that's very executive branch friendly to draw the line at a place that I think a lot of people as a layperson, would say, wow, that's not war, that's not sufficiently war related. And this is the this is where you get into the, the idea of national interest where the risk of escalation, as you mentioned, the risk of escalation is relatively modest, if not uh, de minimis, where US troops are not in sustained ground positions. That's a bit of doctrine that's developed, in my understanding, uh, to define when you can use the military it's to do Developed within the executive branch. Yes, developed within the executive branch and implemented in practice to, to establish when you could use military force without going to Congress because you don't have to define the defense versus offense distinction because you're below the threshold of war. Right. Um, and again, the probably the most developed discussions really were publicly vetted during the Libyan intervention mm-hmm. once that started to extend. We saw a lot of development there. And then there was an echo of it more or less similar uh, when Trump authorized some episodic strikes against Syrian government forces rather than Islamic State forces. Which we've talked about a little bit right. before. So I guess one one thing to say, having set it all up that way, is is the Soleimani strike best understood as being defended from an Article 2 perspective on the ground that, oh, this is below the threshold of war, it doesn't raise these issues, never mind, nothing to see here. As long as there's national interest, right. it's not escalatory, we don't have boots on the ground, it's okay. I, I don't think so. I think that it actually fares badly on that frame because the escalation risk is so clear. And latent. But I think it's a different question to say this was defense. This was prize cases defense. This was national self-defense. It is a war powers question. We're at that level. But it's within the president's authority because we were attacked first. Hence the war powers resolution notification. Yeah, I, I mean, interesting question. Because in they,
1: they haven't made notifications for all of these strikes, right? They've just, they've some of them they haven't even bothered to notify.
0: I, I'm not up to speed enough to know when precisely they've been doing it, and also I don't have enough faith in their process to oh, think that right. they that the episodicity of their notifications would reflect a, a considered position. Right. But so, so the position I'm trying to carve out you know, here right. is. It, this was. This is not. This is on the national yeah. self-defense side, not the national interest Exactly. Low and, threshold and side. And so, therefore, if I'm right about that, yeah. and let me let me underscore that this is based on the premise that the facts being asserted about uh, Soleimani's responsibility for prior acts, right. including this run-up of attacks through this fall, um, are in fact true, or at least or at least well enough established to warrant the action. Uh, if it all proves to be false, obviously that that doesn't hold up. But I think what it does suggest is that the escalation risk, of course, still looms hugely large from the policy perspective, but I don't think it's actually part of the Article Two doctrine that I have in mind as being most relevant here. I think that escalation risk... Is indeed important. If what you're arguing is, well, this may not be defensive, but it's low. So on the
1: the morning, so on the morning of December seventh, nineteen forty-one, right? If FDR, you know, FDR authorizes the use of military force in self-defense against the attack from the Japanese navy, right? He says you can go after the aircraft carriers. We didn't have the capability to do it, but imagine if we spotted them, right? um, Then your argument would be. Obviously, there—that's a huge escalation risk, right? right. Like that, uh, then we're going to be in an open, all-out shooting war. and FDR wants to we already are, right? And so, to help well, with that, I think that risk. would be
0: a super easy case. I might even say it's a paradigm case with one wrinkle. It would be by definition anticipatory self-defense if you got them before they bombed us, if before before they launched the planes. Other, right. you, you know, you can make arguments and have a right. but if you could take them out in the middle of the Pacific. Um, I would say, yeah, that was anticipatory self-defense, but that was still self-defense.
1: But so here's the problem, right? So so actually, I have, I have two problems. The first is I have a problem with the entire line of low threshold national interest uses of Article Two power, right? That that I I really do think that the prize cases are fairly understood as drawing a pretty bright line between defense and offense, um, and I just am not convinced that na- acting in our national int- in our national interest. When not in response to an immediate threat and provocation falls on the defense side, but right putting that so so I actually have a problem with the whole line of OLC right. reasoning dating back right. to so the like
0: Libya the Syria one-offs. I have a problem with all
1: that, Sure, and I think okay. I've been consistent about that. I hope I've been consistent about that. Um, as you say, I think I think I am persuaded that that is not this right, Um, and that the drift of power that we saw in all those OLC opinions, starting with the Obama administration and working their way into the Syria strikes, right, is not as overtly implicated here, although obviously it's up a piece, right, that like, you know, if OLC can point to all of these accretions of power, um, then it looks like there's more and more pressing for what it's doing. The problem I have with the way you've, I think, quite elegantly framed this is that everything rises and falls on imminence right, um, because if, you know, what, and this beg, and this is the question, why now, right, like, why last week as opposed to last, like, the Obama administration knew where Soleimani was, right, most of the time, right, the, I'm sure even at the end of the Bush administration, we were tracking Soleimani, right, during this stuff, like, what is it about now, and is it really just the attack, attacks, plural, last week? Or was this a long time in the making when they were just looking for an excuse, right? Or was it, you know, the sort of super cynical version, right, uh, sort of wag the dog, right, an effort by the president to distract from the bad other uh, domestic headlines. Like this is, you know, w- that's what gets my dander up. And what frustrates me to no end is we will never know, right? Because historically, I think the president would have felt obligated to provide a full, even if classified briefing, Right, to the congressional leadership in both parties, to assuage separation of powers concerns, to get buy-in from the congressional leadership. We've talked before about how this is not a kind of action that requires gang-of-eight notification by statute, right? but just by tradition. Um, and the president sort of went out of his way not only to not notify congressional Democrats, but, and I realize this is petty, but I want to I say this out loud. He retweeted a frickin' Dinesh D'Souza tweet Right. That basically said, yeah, the reason why we didn't tell Schumer is because that would be like telling the Iranians. Right. I mean, like, you know, and so in a world and, you know, the, the historically, the reason why I would have been comfortable with this kind of Article II assertion of power is because I had faith that the congressional leadership's, you know, notification would have allowed for them to either say, yes, we support this. No, we don't. I, I have no faith. Right. Given the toxicity of our current political climate, that the relevant factual information is being shared with anyone who the president thinks is an is an is an
0: opponent at this moment in time. So I want to separate the notification and role of Congress uh, apart from the decision making. Yeah. Um, And let me talk first about you mentioned that it, it all hinges on or you say it all hinges on eminence to me. To you. right right so I take a different view I think that actually imminence is, is a red herring it's very important from a policy perspective I get that in the public diplomacy aspects I think it's legally a red herring here I think the critical point is the claim that I think at least some of these officials are asserting and I think is actually the the plausible argument here there is a series of existing attacks that have already occurred. That provided already the predicate for action. Now you point out, okay, but then why not prior action? Why not you know any at any point previously? Um, The decision as to whether to take advantage of the potentially available legal authority, that's a policy decision. And there's nothing wrong with prior presidents and this president previously having decided not to go there at any point in the past. I don't think that ever disables a future president from making the decision that, okay, at this point, the policy calculus is different. Now, do I have faith that Donald Trump went through some... uh, In even halfway reasonable, serious, reasonably serious policy calculation, I'm not not particularly. No, I I doubt that very much. I I have a lot of questions about what exactly was going through this person's mind. That won't surprise anyone who listens to this show, because I've, as I said at the outset earlier, I've been saying for many many years now that this is a person who I don't trust to to make reasonable decisions in that respect. But just looking at it from an abstract perspective of could a president reasonably in light of what may have been the facts here have decided that Soleimani has ordered enough things to occur that have already caused enough violence to occur to open the door towards a a response of this kind. I think I think that was already the case. It's not a situation in which there needs to be a reasonable basis to believe there was yet another attack coming another rocket to be launched another American to be killed then it would be okay as long as we thought that was going to happen I do think I do think that you need to believe that it's not all over and done with but I, of course it wasn't all over and done with I think it's pretty clear it was so I mean this I
1: mean matter. this this gets into a fascinating debate that was going on on Twitter between Marty Lederman and Beck Beckenbuer, right, and Ona Hathaway, um, and and I don't, I'm not going to do it justice. Cause it's like a four thousand tweet debate. Um, but does that, requ- does your framing of it that way
0: require the existence of an armed conflict between the United States and Iran? I don't think it requires one. I think it gives rise to one once you decide. Okay, let's let's simplify the fact pattern yeah. rather than keeping it real mushy. Yeah. Let's say that the best understanding of the facts cut off everything prior to 2019. So the world begins in 2019, we're there, Soleimani begins to take an interest then. Obviously, that's not at all how it was. It's it's been much more uh, thick engagement over time. But let's assume that all there is, is what I described earlier from the Reuters report, that one government decides to act through proxies, provide them with sophisticated weaponry, and then give them orders to begin launching those missiles, both at the host state's forces and at the US forces there, and that they begin doing so. They don't succeed in killing Americans at first, but then they, they finally, with a barrage of 30, of them, kill one American, wound others, and there's every reason to believe there's more of the same coming. Um, First of all, I would argue that they are, as a matter of state responsibility, if we want to put on our international law hats, they've got state responsibility for the actions of those militia forces that they are arming and directing, if that's the real fact pattern. I think that follows from Nicaragua, and it follows from many other sources of international law. I don't think that's even a hard call if those facts are accepted as true. I would argue that when one state is doing that, against the forces of another state, these sorts of military kinetic engagements, then I think you've actually got a state of armed conflict between them already. Now, both governments may choose not to publicly talk about it that way. They may not take any particular actions for a variety of policy, political, diplomatic reasons, but as a legal description of what's going on, I think they've actually already got an international armed conflict between them. Even if that weren't the case, I certainly think that when the United States military conducts a military strike against an Iranian general, the international armed conflict models the international law of international armed conflict comes into bear, IHL comes to bear, it is an IAC scenario. Um, so I'm not sure if that's responsive to your question, but I, I definitely think LOAC at that point governs. Okay. So I mean I guess I guess my my bottom line here is
1: I think it is not obvious that the strike was illegal. Right, as a matter of domestic law. Although then again, they're, they're, the, the international law questions get much, much messier because mm-hmm. it has so much to do with our relationship with Iraq. Right? right so there's a, there's is,
0: some really naughty UN Charter, Usad Bellum style because, questions right, around this. Right.
1: This is a strike against a military leader of Country C on the soil yeah. of Country B
0: by Country A. If we'd killed him in Iran, right. It would be a straight up it violation would be a, of the. Quite analogous. Yeah. Oh, violate? No. <laughs> That's not at all where I was going. Well, I mean, It would I mean, be a real... Seri- sorry,
1: sir, it would be a violation of Iran's sovereignty, and the question would be whether it was excused
0: by Article okay, 51. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, right, I just, exactly. Right. We, we would replicate the entire national self-defense right. type debate, only we'd be talking about it through the lens of Article 51. Was this or was this not a scenario where Soleimani, where Iran... We, we, we're focused too much on Soleimani as an individual, as if as if he's Bin Laden, right. as opposed to a manifestation of the Iranian state. Right. Um, so we would be talking about whether Iran had engaged in an armed attack already, opening the door for the United States to use force, right. necessary and proportionate force in response. Um, the fact that it occurs within Iraq gets so tricky because what are we even doing in Iraq? Well, we're there with Iraqi government consent. Um, but their the consent moment. is mod- Yeah, we were. Um, their consent is modulated by constraints on whether and how we use force within their territory. It's all supposed to be Islamic State directed. So, um, and I don't claim to have an easy answer on exactly how you cash out the USAD Belm U.N. Charter issues there. I do think that the underlying national self-defense issue from Article Two uh, works out in analogous fashion, involves the same sorts of questions and the same sh- factual predicates. As does the Article Fifty One UN Charter uh, discussion. So anyway, all right, sorry. All right. Yeah. So,
1: but so to say, all this to say, I think it's a close call on the Article Two question. I, I think, I think, I think it's a closer call than you do. Yeah. Um, no doubt. I also think that the fact that like this debate is out there shows just how problematic it is. Right. That there's no one other than the executive branch to police the contours of Article Two. Right. Because, you know, suppose that the sort of suppose
0: that I was right and you were wrong. Um, right. It wouldn't matter. Yeah. Well, it's making it worse. Suppose the whole deal is that actually it turns out that n- none of these attacks were directed by right. IRGC. Now, I don't believe that. No, no. But, but what if it turned out to be true? And the, and the White House knew it and did this anyway. Yeah. Right? We'll make it even worse. Right. It's a straight up wag the dog. Right. Um, it wouldn't matter.
1: Right, like I mean, it 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 might matter politically, but I wouldn't. I don't even think it would matter politically because what Republican right now is going to stand up to President Trump over this?
0: I haven't seen anyone. If if you if there was some sort of tape that showed that this was a straight up wag the dog scenario, I would argue that it would matter politically. But maybe I'm optimistic.
1: There are lots of things I like to think would matter. So so (laughs) all right, no, obviously. so, So let's talk about what's happened since. Right, Because whatever one thinks of the
0: original strike, some of what's happened since is, um, how do I say? Wait, before we leave it, I I, I definitely want to go there. But before we leave where we've been, I want to flag two things. Because I do think that um, it is important for listeners to think about how they feel about this in comparison to prior examples. Mm -hmm. I think the two probably most relevant prior examples, 1986 Operation El Dorado Canyon and the Reagan administration's Large-scale set of airstrikes against uh, the Qaddafi regime, mm-hmm. which, to be sure, they were careful to say we weren't targeting Qaddafi himself. However, they did they did target one of his residences and ended up killing some of his family. So, be careful how we parse the you know the idea that we weren't targeting him. Right. Uh, and then and then also the 1998 uh, clinton administration use of force in afghanistan in particular after the east african embassy bombings attempting to kill bin laden and the shura council leadership of al-qaeda which missed um, because it took so long for the missiles to get there but nonetheless was an attempt in in both cases um, these were examples in which there was no authorization for use of military force from congress um, there's no statutory foundation. These were both national self-defense. Article two uh, airstrikes conducted in ways that were arguably necessary and proportionate responses to prior attacks that killed Americans. In both those cases, uh, much more visibly attributable and much more uh, much more high visibility, more media covered events. The East African embassy bombings, of course, were hugely bloody and in the focus of intense attention. And, and relatively clear attribution pretty quickly um, the 1986 Eldorado Canyon raid was an immediate response to the Libyan orchestrated bombing of the Label discotheque in West Berlin that killed US service members it was also part and parcel of a larger train uh, chain of what we today might call you know gray zone type uh, engagements in which Libyans were engaging in all sorts of nefarious activity I actually think it's quite similar, I think that it's the Libyans. Hap- I think what happened here was really analogous in some ways, except for the complexity of it taking place in Iraq instead of in Iran, as we said a moment ago, and uh, and because the Reagan administration went out of its way to say, hey, we weren't targeting Qaddafi personally. Um, but I actually, I think once you're engaged in an international use of force of that yeah. scale intensity, if you're otherwise uh, lawfully allowed to do it, I actually don't, th- I think that because it would be an armed conflict between the two states in that context, if if who you're actually if you decide to target Gaddafi himself if he's the military commander of of the uh, Libyan forces in 1986 I think that would have been lawful um, and I think it was lawful here as far as the targeting of the individual as opposed to just bombing the building where you're going to kill lots of people. No, listen, I mean, I, I mean, I, the one
1: one point where I think you and I don't disagree is in a world in which the strike is otherwise lawful as a matter of Article Two authority, right? I think you and I both agree that it doesn't contravene the yeah. the assassination
0: ban. Yeah. Right. Um, All right. So anyways, I throw that out there. It's food for thought. I'd be interested if anyone had thanks. No, no, no. It's distinguishable. I'd love to hear why. Um, I mean, Iran's not Libya.
1: Right. And, and I mean that in a couple of respects. Right. I mean, like, I think, you know, I think the threat Iran as a country poses to the United States is, to me, significantly greater than the threat that Libya as a country posed to the U.S. circa 1986, which is not to say.
0: I don't know. I don't, I don't think I agree, but
1: well, I, mean, I think it's similar. One of them has a nuclear program. And one of them doesn't.
0: Neither one yet has a nuclear bomb, let alone the missiles to deliver them here. Both yeah. of them support terrorism abroad. I think they're quite similar. Okay. Well, but all, And
1: now we also say, and the Libya stuff was incredibly controversial, and there are a whole lot of people who thought it was illegal. True. Yeah, okay. yeah there you go. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I, my goal is only to, to establish an analogy. It may not be a helpful analogy <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair from enough. that perspective. No, listen. I don't think this is the first time we've had crazy shit in this context. I'm <laughs> cursing
1: a lot today. All right. Um, so <laughs> – Okay, so it gets a little – it starts – then I mean, predictably, things, then things yeah, run off the rails, right?
0: Right. So now we're at the bluster stage. Yes.
1: So, um, to the shock of of absolutely nobody who understands anything, right? The strike produced immediate blowback from a whole lot of voices and a whole lot of sectors, um, which you know, because the presence of the president led him to double down um, and to threaten all kinds of uses of force against Iran. Um, so let's start with his tweet. Um, threatening that he was going to identify 52 cultural and religious sites to
0: target. Well, that's not quite what he said, right? Okay. He said that 52 sites in included may include yes. cultural sites. Yes. I don't think he ever said religious sites, although that might or might not be subsumed. Okay, fine.
1: That. 52 sites include, so 52 obviously is the number, right? That, uh, that number yeah. has meaning here. Yeah. It's based on the hostages. Right. Um, yeah. Targeting cultural sites. That's cool. Yeah. So clearly you can't do that. If, if, if what he means, you, but you say you say
0: clearly he can't do that. Who's gonna stop him? I think. Do you think that? Do you think that military commanders, if if Trump issues an order says, "I want you to find some museums and some cultural sites, I want you to blow them up," you think they'll just say, "Yes, sir"? I don't think so. I've seen no evidence to suggest that they won't. What's your evidence? I I, I turn that back on you yeah. and ask for evidence that they would. I, I think that the burden is on someone who claims the military would obey a plainly illegal order to show me some reason to think that the military would say, yeah, sure, no problem. I just, I worry about that. I just, I, you know. It's good to be worried for okay. sure, but I'm, I'm very
1: doubtful. All right. So we have Trump threatening war crimes, right? And so we agree, right? Targeting cultural
0: sites is a war crime. Yeah. It's, so there is no question that the principal distinction prohibits attacks on civilian objects. And the only exception to that is when they are being put to use. So if, if, if he can yes, identify right, a yes, cultural okay. site where right. it's being used militarily, okay. then, it, then, it, then they waive the protection for right. it. But just destroying a museum is destroying a museum. Yeah. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a further layer. There, there's a view that says that um, cultural uh, installations that are civilian objects – that also have a further layer of special cultural relevance may even get further protection. Right. You don't need to have any debate about that. Okay. You can't attack civilian can I, objects I, that are not being put can I quote the tweet use. exactly
1: because I think it's somewhere in between what I said and what you said. Okay, good, yeah. Um, so the tweet says. Um, Blah blah blah, bluster bluster bluster. Let the service warning that if Iran strikes any Americans or American assets, we have targeted, as in we've already targeted. Like we know where they are, right? We've got them a list. Fifty-two Iranian sites representing the hostages, some at a very high level and important to Iran and the Iranian culture, right? So, so I, I think he's saying like. The list of fifty-two includes cultural. No, I agree. I agree science. that he's,
0: he's. You're right. I think I said maybe. Right. and I, know, I want to take that. Yeah. The May. Yeah. No. He clearly was saying that we will attack okay. something that will include. Now he's. He's obviously. We don't want to fall into the trap of responding to all his bluster because he does bluster. But it's a real risk that he might issue an order to attack civilian objects. And I don't think the military would comply with that. So I really don't.
1: Here's my here's my concern, right? My concern is it would be – I would have been assuaged if anyone from his administration stood up and said, obviously, the president didn't mean that, right? Obviously, the president knows that you can only attack military targets, blah, 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 blah. And instead, you've got people like Pompeo going on the Sunday shows and saying, oh, that's not what he said. Right. Like like literally say he said something else
0: as opposed to if he said that I would stop him. I'm not familiar with what was how they tried to walk back the statement. But to your point, if they were out there trying to walk back the statement, that's a sign that, in fact, even they who otherwise are real hot to try to pursue this course of action in general, recognize yes, that that's about, not a place lie to Lying about
1: what he said is better than actually saying what he said was wrong. I, that's not what I said. I know. That's what I said. <laughs> all right. Okay. So um, so step one was President Trump threatening to attack cultural sites. Um, step two, this was the best tweet of them all, um, was the, the, the these media posts will serve as notification to the Congress that should Iran strike any <laughs> U.S. person or target, the U.S. will quickly and fully strike back and perhaps in a disproportionate manner. I know Such like, legal notice is not required, but it's given everyone. else. Okay, so we agree, I assume, that disproportionate uses of military force are unlawful?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, it'd be hard to construct if you were just going to use a few words. And yeah. try, if you said on an exam, like, hey, um, d- using, like, four words... It'd be too easy. ...issue an unlawful order. Right. Uh, conduct a disproportionate strike. Against cultural... Now, of course, against cultural... Now, of course, again... I want to stick and be faithful to my own rule of not playing too much into Trump's hands when he's blustering and BSing and doing these you know, these bombastic statements right. and assume that that means, therefore, he's going to issue Listen. an order later that's going to be – OK, I, I purposely direct you to engage in disproportionate response. I agree,
1: but it is too – we are too far into this nonsense of an administration – to have the whole, like, don't take anything he says literally. Know, I'm I'm not saying that we should I know you're care, not, but there are people out there who are. There are sure. people out there who say you can't ever take anything he says literally.
0: And right. honestly, like, and therefore, everything he says is fine. Right. No, I completely disagree with okay. that. What he says really matters. This matters, and that's why we're going to talk about it. Right. Um, there's no doubt that whether he's referring to Usad Bellum proportionality that is to say um, that the response to an armed attack in self-defense will be a disproportionate response or whether he means use in bellow uh, proportionality that is to say we're going to intentionally kill more civilians than the than would be warranted under the principle of proportionality whether he means article two proportionality there's proportionality in several different relevant frameworks (laughs) by definition if it's disproportionate then you you've contravened the framework whoops um and again i don't think that If he somehow could articulate a way of – if he said like, you know, I want a disproportionate response – what he would get would be a response. There would be a weighty response, but it would not be an obviously war crime response because <laughs> I don't think DOD is just going to go out there and say, "Okay, he wa- he wants the principal distinction violated. Let's do it. He wants the principle of nationality whole... violated. Let's do it." I'm trying That's to remember. What's gonna I'm happen. trying
1: to remember. There is a whole Western episode. I think it's in the first season. It's like one of the early episodes called proportional response. Or like, oh, there's it? a whole episode like, where like, there's like,
0: what are the virtues of a proportional response? And I was like, it's the law. <laughs> oh, I gotta see that, I've not seen um, that. Um, I will say this though, we don't want to fetishize the idea of proportionality in the sense of making it sound like it's a mathematical calculation, no, no. and thereby running the risk of making people think that there's any kind of formula that can be brought to bear here. The truth of the matter is, uh, both on the Article Two and ad bellum proportionality, and, and to a, maybe a lesser extent, but nonetheless a disturbingly real extent on the collateral damage proportionality fronts, the question of exactly what's proportional has lots of room for disagreement. I, I completely agree, but, it, but literally it saying yeah. it's going
1: to be disproportionate? Oh, I know, I know. Okay. Um, two other things, two, two, uh, one small point and then one big one, right, to sort of wrap this up. So... Um, Third, there were a bunch of reports yesterday that seem to have been sufficiently corroborated to now actually take seriously that Customs and Border Protection has been ramping up its detention of Iranian Americans trying to enter the United States. Um, It's early, right? CBP denies that there's any policy change going on, that there's been any shift in how they approach, you know, arriving. We're not talking about people with no connection. We're talking about people who are living in the United States are we tri- talking about
0: American citizens so who also some have American citizens, citizenship? There, there are
1: reports of both. There are reports of dual citizens. There are reports of green card holders. And there are reports okay. of other lawful but non-permanent residents.
0: Okay. People have the right to be in the United States. Are, is, so I don't know this news story. Yeah. Is, are they saying that people are being held in custody or are people being questioned? So they're being detained for up to seven or eight hours and
1: questioned. So it's not clear that anyone's being held beyond that right, but that they're being subjected to aggressive questioning about right. their politics and their uh, networks and all kinds of other things. Now, I, I say, these are just, you know, a yep. couple of scattershot media reports. There's a press release from an immigrants' rights groups in the Pacific Northwest. But if this is true, right, and I, and I stress the if, right, um, that's a rather alarming escalation. Uh, and I, suspect, I mean, it's, it, it, it harkens back to the very beginning of the travel ban, right, where there was this knee-jerk reaction where the original policy was so unnuanced that it swept up all these folks who had like clear due process rights to enter the United States, like green if, card if holders. If we're
0: talking about someone who's got yeah. who's an Iranian citizen, yeah, who's coming into the United States from wherever, who's um, returning to the United States, who, right? returning. We're talking is about residents. The, the claim is only for people who were here already. Okay, but okay. So let's hypothesize: some individual who is an Iranian citizen yeah. who's just a, got a student visa, goes back to Iran, comes back. Um, I certainly don't think it's crazy in the midst of where we absolutely can and should expect the Iranians to be looking for some way to respond to the killing of their Mm. arguably second most important government official um, for there to be enhanced screening. If there's
1: some, so this I mean, this goes back to one of the longest debates in our field, right? Which is individualized suspicion versus mass suspicion. Right. And, you know, I would hope fervently that any any additional screening, right, is based on facts beyond their 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 national origin, right? That <coughs> that that there's at least some reason why you believe that someone who's say someone has been living in the U.S. I mean, one of the reports is is a um, a writer who's been living in the U.S. for 35 years, right? Like some reason why all of a sudden you think that they warrant additional process beyond the fact that they are you know they were
0: born in Iran. Cle- clearly that. It would sound like both uh, a problematic and and stupid way to devote scarce border security that's never resources. St- that's never stopped us before. Um, but but I can't say that the idea that in this context, you can't say, all right, we need special focus on Ar- people yeah. who have ties to Iran yeah. of, of any kind, including yeah. people who are not Iranian citizens but spend a lot of time over there for whatever reason. I think it makes perfect sense for there to be some sort of leveling up of scrutiny at Again, the border in this if context. if there was...
1: T- I, I, for, for me, it all rises and falls on whether there's some individualized reason why this person is more suspicious.
0: Could, can't we have a... Both ways in the following sense, that there's in general a decision to focus on Iran as a target set in this sense. And then within that general leveling up to exercise sound, individualized suspicion to determine just how long and probing the questioning is going to be. And indeed, isn't that probably, <sighs> possibly at least what's actually going on here? That sounds reasonable to me. But the idea that you can't say, all right, we have a special concern with Iran right now. I think that can't be right. That's not. That's not what I'm saying, right? I, I know. You're, you're, I know you're saying it needs to be individualized, but I think that. You, I think that it's not just a binary. Yeah, but suffice to say you have more faith in CBP than I do. Um, I don't think. I don't think it's fair. I don't think that's fair because I don't have a lot of faith in CBP necessarily. I have
1: none. So well, I think okay. We have more, well, that is fair. Though. Some is <laughs> more definition.
0: than none. But I think that the fact that there may be an across-the-board directive. Let's imagine they reveal tomorrow that all right, CBP issued a directive. By the oh. way, if they, by the way, if they reveal that tomorrow, that means they will have lied yesterday. Oh, is that right? Did yes. they deny denied there's any? They denied that there's any. They denied they denied that anything was going on at all. Well, that actually sounds almost incompetent. Because in fact, I would argue they should be paying special Duh. attention to people with ties to Iran right now. It, it was this Bobby. The thing
1: that got my dander up was the denial. Right, because it's like, wait a second, like you know, it if, seems if out that says, you know, uh, everyone stay calm, like you know, we're not nothing radical yeah. has changed. We're, we're just paying reasonable. Addition. This we're, is a dangerous right. time, and we're, right, yeah, uh, con, consistent with the travel alert that the State Department
0: issued right. the other day for right. America. Right. Yeah. right, like we're real concerned about Iran right now. We're being careful, but we're not doing anything that's unwanted. Instead, no, the response problem. was, nope, nope, nothing, to, nothing, see nothing to see here. I agree with you that that's ridiculous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, and then last, I mean, we're we're, we're running out of time, and I, and I do want to save time. Maybe we'll save Star Wars for next week. Um, um, we don't want to give short shrift. Indeed, we'll, get, we'll
0: do Fresno instead.
1: Um, all right. So um, the last thing is just the the, the policy implications because we've really we've we pounded into the ground on the legal issues, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think that we should talk about why you and I both have the reaction that legal issues aside, right? This is uh, troubling as a policy matter.
0: Well, I think I think it'd be crazy to deny that this is super high stakes and and high risk. Um, I suspect you and I may disagree on whether at the end of the day this was unwarranted. Um, What do you think? I'm assuming that you think it was a a terrible idea. But are you open to the possibility that in fact, no, there was, this is someone who keeps getting American blood in his hands and at some point we had to we had to do something that would be effective to stop it. But that. you I
1: mean you said before something very important, right? That that it's important to understand the strike against Soleimani is not against a strike against a person, but as a strike against someone who was a senior figure for right. Iran. No, this is right? an
0: attack on Iran, and for so, sure.
1: And so the question is, well won't there now won't there be another Soleimani, right? And so so right like like how this is one guy who poses a unique
0: threat versus just we're attacking this guy in his official capacity. Right? I I think there's no question. Obviously, he's already got his replacement. Um, I do think Soleimani, to some extent, was unique due to the tenure and charismatic elements of his leadership and the length of it and the, the extent to which he was. I really do think he was almost uniquely powerful in this respect. Um, it won't be quite the same as before. But it's this is an institution. It's not like these ties and capabilities entirely. But this go away. goes to
1: but this goes to my view of the optics, right, and of the and of the policy, because it seems to me that there's no scenario in which Iran won't respond, right? And that and that the question then becomes like, what does that response look like? And how do we respond in turn? Right. And I have so little faith at the moment. In the leadership of the executive branch, to not um, take any action by Iran, right? Even what even what we might think of as a proportional response, right? Um, and react aggressively, lawfully or not, react at, to the to the fullest
0: extent that the law would allow them, if not beyond that. I think it's very likely that it look. I think it's not clear that Iran will react quickly. I think the actual tools available to it to react in a way. That they feel they can control the escalation spiral, they have to be very concerned about this as much as we do. Probably yeah. more than we do. I don't think it's obvious how they respond. Um, if I but had, but don't you think it's you know obvious is that they'll respond? I think they are going to feel tremendous pressure to be seen to be responding because the level of provocation was was so strong. Um But what? Let's let's play it out. So. And and, that, and, and, that, and 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 because there's a bit of an in-your-face thing going. Like I mean, right? You know, but uh, but again, so so what would be enough to respond to the pressure they may feel to be seen to be punching yeah. back? So let's say they decide, all right, we're going to have our proxies there, set up some IDs, and we're going to kill a uh, X number of Americans in uh, in Iraq. It's clear we are going to then respond militarily again right and in a larger scale right And it becomes a classic question of who's got escalation dominance here. So so let's say that they do that. we respond, we don't strike 52 cultural targets, but let's say there's one big airstrike that destroys um, an IRGC headquarters building and kills a bunch of people inside of it inside Iran this time. Uh, so then they've got to respond again. It's not obvious that they just keep leveling up every time we level up too. It's not clear, actually, who's got the escalation dominance. I agree, here. But, that, but and and that's part of why I don't think
1: it's it's possible to know now, right? Whether this was a good idea,
0: right? But well, clearly, we you know that time will tell. It could be. We need to be open to the possibility that could be that it turns out this was a significant deterrent blow to them. And yes, this causes them to pull back to some extent. On their attacks could on be. Americans, it so, might suffice it to say I am far more. If,
1: if I had to put money down, right, I think it's far more likely that the, that more Americans will die, right, um, in response to this than 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 perhaps had this
0: not happened. I think it's really hard to know. I think it's yeah. certainly possible. It's yeah. also important to build into that calculus, though. How how many go on the tab if there had been no action and right. they continued to provoke and not get this sharp a pushback? But there's it's hard also, to know. There's also, I
1: mean, in, insofar as some of that conflict is asymmetric, there's also the question of, like, you know, it's not just escalation dominance, right? It's also, like, moral dominance, right, and moral superiority and whether there's something to be said for taking the high ground. Um the, the the other piece of this, and I think this is any any analysis of the of the policy ramifications of the strike is going to have to depend upon what this does, if anything, right, to our footprint in Iraq, um, right? So yes. so the Iraqi Parliament um, what voted yesterday, right, to uh, in a non-binding resolution right. to expel the U.S. military, to otherwise cut off access, you know, blah, blah blah things that don't actually have a direct immediate impact, but that will put a fair amount of pressure on the Iraqi government to perhaps. Not go all the way, but at least try to reach some kind of look like they're doing something to mitigate the footprint, yeah. right? To sort of
0: push back against the U.S. a little bit. But I think there's no doubt that if the end result of this is they actually do force the withdrawal of U.S. forces, or even the subni- or even the substantial downsizing. You know, we've got we're talking about five thousand acknowledged forces right. here, many of whom are there engaged in training in support of the Ara- uh, the Iraqi. Uh, military. It matters, I'm not sure how big a blow it is, if there's some sort of face-saving negotiation where some number of them Now leave. it's like 3,000. Yeah, exactly, I-, I don't know how much that matters, especially if what remains is the special operations capability that I, I, f- I have the impression is right. based out of the Kurdish region in the north anyways, who by the way, may well stay no matter what the Iraqi parliament or the Iraqi prime minister say. It's entirely possible that the relative independence of the Kurds in that area and the relative emphasis of US special operations capability up there that that all sort of remains. But if
1: nothing else, don't you think that this only further complicates, right, the political situation in Iraq? No, um, no
0: doubt about it. No, in, in a way that favors Iran,
1: right? Yeah. And that's and that and so at the, that to me is my bottom line. Right, right? Is, that, is that when all else is said and done, I think that the 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 most predictable
0: consequences of this strike to me come out good for Iran and bad for us. I think that's probably right. And I think that there's non-negligible chances it goes the other way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I have no doubt that we're going to have more to talk about because I, I do think that there's this is going to be a, a theme of 2020. We're going to be on this topic a lot as the story develops. This um, is so depressing. For those who don't want a dose of uh, frivolity at the end, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, but for those who have either seen Frozen 2 haven't seen it and don't really care or otherwise want to engage um, you want to do a real quick rundown i've i've only got a minute or two before i have to go steve but let's let's get frozen uh, you liked it i you, really like frozen too it, do you want to make the argument cuz i i wouldn't but I you thought, want to argue I, that it's I maybe actually even thought better, it was better than, than, than frozen original. 1 okay how how could you possibly say that um so in two
1: respects one i thought the music was actually better like i really like mm. the songs i know um let it go bobby um but but two sh- I thought that there was actually a story, a message in the plot of Frozen 2 for kids that, you know, Frozen, I, I don't know how much of a message the original Frozen has as opposed to just this is entertaining, right? I thought there was a real message in Frozen 2, um, and it was a message about the importance of family, right? It was a message about the importance of sort of, you know, when things are going really badly, just, you know, keep, you know, the only way out is through, Right, um, I really thought Anna's uh, Anna's song, uh, "The Next Best Do the Next Right Thing," um, is a remarkably powerful message to send to little kids, um, and so it's not just that I thought they did a really, really good job of. A, creating a, uh, an equally compelling story for a story that did not start as a multi-part story. Right. Right, uh, of, of just sort of inventing a second story that actually maps very nicely onto the first story and explains a couple things from the first story, contra Star Wars. Um, but also um, that there's a real sort of, I think, uplifting and
0: pe- like parenting useful message to kids built into the plot of the movie. I guess I think that on the – so the fundamental question for me that you raise is, am am I in this for the entertainment or for messaging? Um, It's nice when you get them both. If I had to choose, I'll take the entertainment over the messaging when I'm going to see a Disney film. Yeah, Um, And I really thought the originality in sweep and surprising elements of the original – uh, almost by definition can't be matched once you go back to visit the same characters in the same place and cook up a new story. So I don't think it's fair to ask the sequel to even be nearly as good as the original by that measure. Thought it was great. Like they, as you say, they came up with a good further story that kept my interest. Uh, found new things for the characters to do. I, I didn't see any of the characters doing things that were, you know. Wow, I never thought that character would develop in that direction. It all seemed just a continuation of what we already knew about them all, with the exception that I did I did like it that they made Olaf a bit teenagery. Yeah. That was a as, a as a parent of teenagers, I thought that was pretty awesome. Olaf was and, a super and, teenager and prevented the real risk that Olaf, you know, the 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 sugar sweet saccharine Olaf character just gets on your nerves at a certain point. Yeah. Kept him interesting.
1: The, the jar jarization of Olaf. Oh, good. Um, all right, what songs better into the unknown or show yourself?
0: I thought Into the Unknown was pretty good. Um, I, I like the songs. I thought they did a good job. The songwriting team, whose name is escaping me, but the, the couple of the Desi songs, they're really incredible uh, artists. So I thought that was an incredible chore to come up with anything vaguely iconic right. with its theme. And that
1: they did is pretty good.
0: Yeah. that, that It didn't surprise me because these are extremely, Indeed. maybe the best at this. But um, that was that was good.
1: All right. One, one last thing I want to say. You know who plays um, um, the mother? Mm. Yeah, Evan Rachel Wood, who is Dolores from Westworld. Oh, really?
0: Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. I which love it. Which,
1: which gets me super excited about
0: Westworld because it's finally 2020, which means Westworld is coming. We're going to be loving that. Let me just say one, one negative thing that I didn't love ah. about um, – I didn't feel like they gave a lot of reason for their their father to turn out to be this warmongering, murderous person. Mm. It was not set up as to what, what was the strategic uh, incentive to do this down in Arendelle to go uh, conduct this uh, – you know, Raiders terrible the, deed. The, the Northmen. Yeah, they, so they've been they've been fighting back and forth. I I just felt a little bit like we need someone to be Plot. a horrible villain. Yes. Plot requires that there be a terrible twist where they can be ashamed of what they did and have a redemption arc. Maybe Frozen Three will tell us. Oh, maybe so. Maybe it's a backstory where something terrible happened to oh, him. Prequel. Cool. There you go. Um, into the unknown,
1: Bobby. Into the unknown. Indeed. Um, and uh, speaking of January 2020 and TV shows, Star Trek: Picard. It's oh coming. God, it's good. We're going to have a busy year. All right. right Got to run. Uh, next week, we'll do Star Wars. Uh, we'll do both the movie and we'll do the Mandalorian. End of Mandalorian. Yeah. Um, cause I'll probably have watched it by then. Good. Um, and hopefully, there's still a world to talk I, about. I this. suspect we'll
0: have something new to talk about on the we business have, end we, of the we show, also, too. We also have
1: the Guantanamo anniversary coming up this Saturday.
0: Guantanamo anniversary?
1: Guantanamo mm, Gu- is about to be old enough, Bobby, to be sent to Guantanamo.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm... I think that actually that line actually was crossed a while back. Well, um, that, uh, yeah,
1: and not violate the convention on the rights of the child. Uh, um, well, we'll, all <laughs> right, got topics to talk about. He's at Bobby Chesney MSC underscore Vladik. We are NSL podcast. Uh, stay safe out there. And I guess what? Go Ravens.
0: Mm, little curveball there at the end. Um, yeah, that would be the Texans. No, Ravens. Bye, everybody. Adios. The Texans? The Texans. The Sean Watson.
1: The Texans. No.